Good morning and welcome. I have titled this lesson, The Sword of the Spirit. Although I am not going to refer to Ephesians 6 in this lesson, and the only reference you'll hear to Ephesians is what Blake read. And I had Blake read that passage because he sums up in about two paragraphs what I'm probably going to take 20 or 25 minutes to try to explain. That we have fellowship with God and Christ through the Spirit, and we know this because the apostles tell us through the word of the Spirit. The passage that I'm working from is actually in 2 Corinthians. If you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. But the passage that I started working from is actually 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, which says, May the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. And it's a short passage, and it's easy to overlook because it is, right, the very last passage in Corinthians, and he moves the Bible, actually our translations move right on into Galatians from there. But it's short and easy to overlook, and the commentators all say that it is a great theological significance. And I would say that that's probably true, and especially true after the third century A.D. when men begin to look at what the scripture meant instead of what it said. Now all interpretation requires an understanding and I want to take just a second to look at the grammar of 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14 and the grammar of the fellowship of the Spirit. It's either objective or subjective. That is, it's either the Spirit owns the fellowship or it's the fellowship that we share in because the Spirit has a fellowship that He gives to us. And there could be much debate about these type of things, and there is much debate about these type of things. We could debate to the point of disagreement. If we don't agree, we talk about our disagreements rather than obeying. And this is kind of what happened to the rich young ruler when he went to Jesus. He goes to Jesus and says, good teacher in this earth, Tell me the theological significance of salvation. And Jesus says, first of all, there's only one good, and I'm not a good teacher, I'm the Word of God, is basically what he tells him. And then he says, salvation comes from obeying the commands. And the rich ruler says to him, well, certainly there must be more theological implications than that. And Jesus tells him, get over your sinfulness, quit with your love of money, and follow me, that is, be obedient. So stop disobeying and follow me. We need to read scripture in its plain, obvious, and original meaning and apply every New Testament precept as is binding now as it was when the apostles walked the earth, except for what is properly miraculous. And I say properly miraculous because the apostles' relationship to the fellowship of the Spirit is different from our relationship to the fellowship of the Spirit through this miraculous nature. Our relationship to the fellowship of the Spirit I think should always be considered through the lens of Acts, Acts 2.38 which says we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit when we are baptized. This also has its objective subjective problems because is that the Spirit that is given to us to dwell in us, or is it the gift that the Spirit gives to us? I think it actually is both, 
because the gift that the Spirit gives us is indeed salvation, but we also have the indwelling of the Spirit, which fights for us in realms that we can't see. So we have both, but again, we can debate this to the point of disobedience. But the apostles' relationship is different from ours, and we're going to look at that from the book of John. We'll start in, in, verse, or in chapter 12 and verse 48, and then we'll jump around to a couple of different passages over in verse 16, 17, and thereabouts. But the context here is the Jew, or the Greeks, have come to the apostles and said, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus tells them to go and tell the Greeks that my word will judge you. Jesus is always answering questions with a different thought that explains what they're asking, but it's just kind of off kilter. So in verse 48 of chapter 12, he says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I spoke will judge him at the last day. And this is pretty much the last teaching that Jesus gives to the crowds before he's crucified. He does teach some other things. Yes, at the, the trials before Pilate, he teaches us some things. And in the conversation that he has with his disciples at the Lord's Supper, some more things are taught. But this is the last thing he publicly says, is my word will judge you. Now, if we look over at chapter 16, and we'll pick up in, in verse 12 there. And the context of this is Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away. And they're sad about that. And John's recording an intimate conversation where Jesus is telling them that he's going to send them a comforter, the Holy Spirit, the helper. So picking up in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and discloses it to you. So he's telling them that he has more things to say to him, but he's not going to tell them now, that in the future, the Spirit will guide and disclose and speak all truth, which is all of Jesus' truth, which is all of God's truth. And we know this was spoken to the apostles because if we look at John in chapter 15, and we'll be picking up in verse 26 there, and when he comes, the Helper, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. And we know that this is spoken to the apostles only because the qualification for the apostle as they are trying to replace Judas, Peter says, is someone in Acts chapter 1 and verse 21, it has to be someone who has been with us in Jesus since the beginning. So he says this to the apostles. And then back in chapter John chapter 14, and we'll pick up in verse 16 there. 
chapter 14, in verse 16, and he says, I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides in you and will be with you. And then dropping down to verse 20, in that day, excuse me, verse 21, he who, has, who, who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, that is not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance that all that I said to you. Now Judas says, Lord, you're going to tell us, that is the apostles, about yourself, but you're not going to tell the world? And Jesus tells him, keep my word. And the word, the commandments, the truth, that will declare me to the world. And then he goes on to say that all that he has taught them will be remembered by them. And this is even before he has told them that all truth will be given to them. So here he says, all that I said is going to remember, the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to teach you, the apostles, all that you need to know to proclaim it. So it goes back and forth. Now it's not that we don't have all truth, because we certainly are told in Peter that we have everything we need to know that pertains to life and godliness. But the idea being that we are not miraculously given this information through the Spirit, that we have to learn and study and obtain it through the Word of the Spirit. And we do know that some of these things are told not just to the apostles, but directly to us. Because if we look over in John 17 and verse 20, which some call the prayer for unity, but I think it might also be the prayer of unity. In verse 20, he's, he's praying, and he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. So what is their word? What is the apostles' word? We're going to back up just a little bit in that chapter and go to verse 6. And he says, I have manifested your name, he's still praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. And they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them, and they truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in all things that are mine are yours, and all yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. So basically, what he's saying here is that they have received and understood and kept the word of the Father. And that has glorified Jesus through the word of God and has kept them glorifying him. If we move on to verse 13, he says, still in his prayer, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And what he said there is basically, as Christ is not of the world, that he is not participating in the world, the, the world is there and they are physically in it, but spiritually they, they are not in the world. And the disciples are unified with Christ in the world or out of the world, not of the world. And this is because the world hates them on the account of the word. So the word is the reason that the world hates Christ and the disciples, the apostles, who are unified with him. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, set them apart in your word. The word sanctify means to set apart. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he is saying, set them apart in your word. And then he says, I set myself apart, I sanctify myself, so that they may be set apart. So he brings them back into unity with him. And that brings us back to where we started. I do not pray on behalf of these alone, but to those who believe through their word. And all this is said so that the world may believe because they are one. And how do we know that the world believes? Well, we can go back to verse 14 and know that the world believes because it has hated his word. And what he is calling us into here is fellowship through his word. I want to go on and talk about our fellowship with the Spirit. I'm going to go to Philippians 2 and verses 1 and 2 and read there. And this is the other time that this, is, this fellowship of the Spirit is used in the, the text. 
So therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, intent in one spirit, intent, uh, unit, excuse me, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is one of Paul's favorite devices. It's the rhetorical question. Of course there's encouragement. Of course there's consolation of love. Of course there is affection and compassion. And yes, there is fellowship of the Spirit. But what is the command here? Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And I'm going to take some comma statements out there and say, intent on one purpose. So what is the intent of one purpose that we're supposed to be in the same mind about? Well, if you look at the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, therefore. And when we see thus or therefore in the scripture, it's therefore a reason, and we need to go back and find out, find out what it's there for. So if we go back to the next complete thought, that would be back in chapter 1 in verse 27. And he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, I will hear of you standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving for the faith of the gospel really cannot be separated from the gospel itself. And the gospel is that Christ lived, that Christ died, and especially that Christ was a re resurrected that we might have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But if we read on, in no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So it's not only faith, it's not just to believe, but it has been granted to us to suffer for him. It's not only fellowship in the word of the Spirit, but it is one mind for the gospel that we are supposed to be in. Now many will take this passage and take the commas out. And the gospel is the grace of Christ, but they take the commas out and say, striving for the faith, that's the sign of your salvation. They leave out the alarming opponents. They leave out the conflicts. They leave out the suffering. So how does this happen? Well, they start with one idea and then change their thought as they proceed. It's a saying, God loves all men. God loved, so he gave grace. All men have grace. Now grace and love are very close. They're very similar, but they're not interchangeable. They mean different things. This would be the same as saying, 
Everyone who breaks the law should be punished. Everyone who flies on an airplane is breaking the law of gravity. So therefore, everyone who flies on an airplane should be punished. They're changing the law from the meaning of the law of the land to the law of gravity. In the same way, they change the love of God to the grace of God. Yes, similar, but not the same. You can't use them interchangeably. This is obviously not the plain and original meaning of the scripture. So how does this happen? I'll give you three reasons, and then we'll conclude. Actually, it'll be four reasons if you want to include the idea that the Bible is just not inspired, and we don't need to, to follow it so long as we believe in Jesus and do things in his name. So if I'm a banjo-playing juggler who rides on a tortoise and do it in Jesus' name, then more power to me. We can do all kinds of things in Jesus' name and not be keeping his law and his commandment. But first of all, the claim is it's not historically accurate. It's not entirely true. Although it is true, it's just not entirely true. This is frequently used in arguments about Jonah, the flood, and especially creation and evolution. But Jesus spoke of all of these things. And if we indeed believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and the word of God is indeed his word, then we must accept all of his teachings. Secondly, we have the idea that it's inspired concepts, but not every word is inspired. As long as we see the big picture, then some of the details and some of the wording just doesn't really matter. It's all an allegory. The objects and the events and the sayings are subject to interpretation because they may or may not really be actual events. Men, yes, possibly even wise men, determine the nature of the symbolic figures and establish how that should direct us. But this was not Jesus' attitude. His attitude was one of every detail mattered. You tithe meant and coming, but you miss mercy, justice, and faith. You keep the small parts of the law, but you miss the major propositions of the law. He says, not one jot nor tittle shall pass away until all is fulfilled. The jot and the tittle were the smallest marks in the Hebrew language and changed the meanings of words. What he's saying, he wanted it all considered from the biggest idea to every comma and apostrophe. And finally, the idea of human inspiration. Oh, it's absolutely inspired, but it's inspired as in Hawthorne, Dickens, Shelley, or Keats. But it's not inspired of God. It's inspired of human inspiration. Wise men wrote good things. Peter and Paul disagree. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, if Peter was just a wise man, then his claim to divinity would be the claim of any other man into what he claimed. 
And if Christ was not resurrected, then our faith is in vain. And heaven is just an allegory. And we will be the same as what I like to call Darwin's worm dirt. So how do we know that the spoken word of long ago was the written word of today? My notes are moist. They're sticking together. So how do we know that the spoken word of long ago is the written word of today? So brethren, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us, that you were taught in past tense. And Peter says in 2 Peter again, now this, beloved, is the second time I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophet and the commandment of the Lord and Savior as spoken by your apostles. The commandment was spoken by the apostles. Now Jesus, when he's telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus who begged and the rich man who begged that Lazarus be sent back from the dead to warn his brothers, Jesus tells him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That is, let the brothers hear the prophets. And if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. So they listen, they hear. And on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, He's telling the two disciples as he's walking with them how the Christ must suffer. And then beginning with Moses, and this is Jesus, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Is scripture written? I will contend it is proven from scripture. And while these men, the disciples from Emmaus, or the road to Emmaus, were telling the apostles Jesus appears and he says to them these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the laws of the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures Jesus Jesus belief was that scripture could be heard through writing. And I will follow Jesus in that account. So there you have it. Fellowship of the Spirit comes through the divine word by the grace of Christ and the love of God. Romans 10:17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you have questions of faith, or perhaps questions about the gift of the Holy Spirit through baptism of Acts 2.38. Let's have this discussion and look at what the Scripture has to say while we stand and sing.